Good to see you guys. I'm Steve Hambrick. I'm the lead pastor here at Vintage, and we are glad that you were here this morning. In a few minutes, you get to hear Timothy Parker. He is our youth pastor. He's going to come and share. I'm going to get you. A, you need to get a better uh, Timothy. Where are you? you? Have to get a better. Um, this is pretty lame. Look at that. Yeah, look at that right there, man. That's pretty bad. We need to throw this thing away. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Harv. All right, fantastic. Well, um, hey, listen. So uh, the um, at the at the end of the at the end of the year last year, we took up our year end offering. If you remember, we took up a substantial offering, and 100 percent went out. Right, seventy two thousand dollars came in for our year end offering. We gave away seventy two thousand dollars of it. Right, it's an exciting thing. So this morning, what I want to do before we take up the offering. I just want to give you, um, I want to share an email with you that came to me uh, last week that uh, that I just, it's one of those things sometimes when the basket comes by, you know, a lot of times it's just one of those things that we just pass it without even thinking about it. But I want you to recognize that as we read this email in a second, you're going to find that as, as we're faithful in our in our offering on Sunday morning or throughout the week, if you give online, which is fantastic, that it's not just your faithfulness and your obedience, but it literally is money that's bringing in the kingdom. And I, and I say that I say that because I want us to recognize again that the act of passing a basket literally is an extension of worship. And I want us to always remember that, right? Even though I don't manipulate, I'm not trying to twist your arm. It's nothing like that at all. I'm very sensitive in how we handle finances because I've Talk to so many people who've been burned by churches and how they handle finances. But I do want us to live in this understanding that what we give has a kingdom impact. And so with that in mind, I want to read this email. So you forgot, can you bring up the Phyla's uh, picture? There, look at you. She's on top of it right there. Way to go, Maddie. I forgot to tell you, and there you are. Just filling in the gaps for me. You're awesome. I want to fill, just read this to you real quick. This is the Phylas. If you remember, they are our, our missionaries who are living in India. They're part of, they're part of the Karube Home community. They are leading a ministry called Daughters of Hope. And I don't want to read this email to you because if you, if you remember, we gave them, uh, we gave them just a lump sum of about $5,000 at our, at our Jubilee gift, right? The year-end offering, we just wrote them a check for $5,000. And I want to read this email to you. The subject says, you guys are the greatest. Seriously. All right? Here it goes. It says, hi, Vintage242. Katie, who does their books, has just informed us this month of the amazing donation that Vintage gave towards Daughters of Hope with their food slash kids ministry. We were seriously blown away with the generosity from Vintage. So we wanted to tell you all a big, and he capitalized that, right, big thank you. and wanted to share just how much this was needed. As you know, our food slash child ministry is a way that we bless our women and their families, as many of them are in very dire circumstances and cannot provide for many basic needs of themselves and their families. It is a ministry that is completely separate from the business, so we rely on people like you all who are generously supporting this ministry. Though you may not have realized it, we have been literally scraping the bottom of the coffers the past few months to provide healthy lunches for our women. We've we've had to cut back on some of the nutritious foods uh, that we like to have in order to save on our food bill. Needless to say, this donation will give us a tremendous boost so that we can have healthy food for our women and their children. It says, please pass this on to the vintage crowd that we are so thankful and overwhelmed with their response to God's call this year. 
through financial support. And so again, this morning, I'm going to ask you now to go ahead and take those baskets. As you pass the basket down this morning, I want it to be a reminder that as we're obedient, as you're obedient, right? As you're obedient to what the Lord calls you to do in giving of your finances, that it's having this kingdom impact in a completely different country. And so go ahead and pass those baskets. I'm going to pray over it as you do. Father, we pray this morning for the Philas. God, as they are serving in India faithfully, God, as they are giving to these this, these women, these children, God, just providing basic food for them during the week. Lord, we pray for an increase in their ministry. We pray, Jesus, that you'd open the floodgates financially. God, that they would never have to scrape from the coffers again. But, Father, that there would be an, an abundance and an overflow, God, that would allow them to provide for these women and these children who are in need every day. And so, Father, we thank you for the partnership that we have with the Philas. We thank you for what you're doing with Daughters of Hope and the women that are literally being saved physically and spiritually through this ministry. We pray an increase upon it today. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd open up the doors for them and the floodgates of heaven and that, God, you would shine your favor upon them in every area of ministry, Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. As Steve said, my name is Timothy Parker, and I am the uh, thank you. And I am the uh, student pastor here at Vintage 242, and I am extremely thankful to be able to share in God's word with you this morning. It's a it's a privilege. It's something I don't take lightly. Um, just because I was jumping around on trampolines, throwing dodgeballs at 11th graders or excuse me, 11 year olds yesterday. I don't take this lightly, but I still do know how to have fun. Um, so we're just going to go ahead and get right into this. Um, last week, we talked about Jesus building his church, and we saw this promise in Matthew 16 where Jesus had his followers gather around him, and he said, I am going to build my church. And we said that this church isn't a building built out of bricks or drywall. This church is a living organism built out of people gathered into relationship together to work for God's will and purpose in their spheres of influence and in their community. Uh, and, and the way that, that Jesus accomplishes this is he first transforms individuals. He starts with one person, and, and the way he transforms them is he gives them life. We said that the greatest problem we face is not that we, have, we make bad choices or make bad decisions or that we're in bad circumstances or in bad situations or in poor environments. Our main problem is that we're spiritually dead and unable to connect with Jesus, therefore unable to be a part of his family. And we said the way that Jesus transforms individuals is that he gives them life. And so now we're going to look at what happens when Jesus gathers all these individuals who have been revived, who have been made new, who have exchanged their former life for the life of God. God is now living his life through them. And he gathers them together through relationships, into community, into a kind of family. And, and this organism is what Jesus called his church and his main method for transforming the world. But I think if we're honest, it doesn't always go from exchanging former life to world and community transformation. Right? Like, I'm sure some of you can remember when Jesus gave you new life. And it was this amazing experience and you've experienced being freed from that former life and its effects. And, but now we say, well, I'm not quite seeing this gates of hell won't prevail. I'm not quite seeing this 
an incredible transformation of my sphere of influence in my community. Uh, so I don't, I don't really know how my life or my life in this group of people called the church is measuring up to what Jesus said. And I, I think, think, I don't think we're alone. Um, in fact, I, I have some, I have some stories from people who have experienced this thing that we call the church and have walked away either um, disillusioned or just not quite getting it and, and don't know what to make of it. So go ahead. We'll start with the first one. This is John. And you're going to understand pretty soon that these are fictional stories. OK, this is John. John is in his late 20s. I know this is weird because I'm saying that's John. John obviously took his photo on a really bright webcam. Um, John has been to church maybe twice. Um, he, he doesn't really, couldn't really say, he knows about Jesus, but has no relationship with him. He has a, he has a reasonably fulfilling job. He's a manager over the computer section at an architecture firm, makes good money, um, respected by his peers, respected by his family. But John is tremendously unfulfilled in his job. Um, his, his career isn't providing the security and identity that he thought it would of being successful and powerful. He actually, uh, you wouldn't be able to tell because he's smiling, but actually John just recently ended a relationship with a girl that he'd been seeing for a while. So he doesn't really know what's going on. He can't make heads or tails of, of his life. And actually, um, last night, John, John didn't really know what to do. So he went out with some buddies to the bar, had a few too many, came home, um, but he, he forgot to, uh, he forgot to change his alarm for work. So John wakes up this morning um, completely distressed, completely without hope. And uh, he, he wakes up to this alarm that he forgot to change. He says, you know what, I'm going to go to church. I remember my mom said that it's a good place to go if, if you needed like a pick me up or you needed something like that. So John walks into church this morning um, and just isn't isn't fulfilled. This need for hope isn't met. And John just walks away saying, I can't help but think that the church should be different. Um, we have somebody next. Uh, this is somebody. Yes, she she is very pretty. Yeah, but I don't know her because this is a fictional story right now. <laughs> um, this is Leslie. Uh, Leslie has grown up in church. She, I mean, grew up in the family. Parents were very involved. Um, now she's in her late 20s, still going to church, but just not quite getting it. Um, she had two really life-changing experiences early on. Uh, she went to a summer camp with, with her youth group when she was uh, in high school. And, and one night after a sermon, she just had this incredible encounter with the Lord. Um, and it really did change her life. She noticed fruit from that. And then later on, when she had just gotten into college, she was part of a, a young women's Bible study. And she was just so moved by the authenticity and care and compassion of the girl she was in the group with. And uh, one night when they were having a Bible study, uh, they were talking about baptism. And she had never understood this before. She never quite grasped the significance, even growing up in the church. And they ended up baptizing Leslie in the bathtub. And it was this remarkable, life-changing experience. But since then, in the past four or five years, Leslie's noticed that the relationships she's in, the place she's going to, just aren't tremendously impactful. She comes and she goes. She finds herself halfway through the sermon wondering what she's going to have for lunch. She's unable to connect with worship because she can't figure out why these experiences aren't happening more. And so Leslie goes to church this morning um, expecting routine. 
She goes this morning knowing what's going to happen. And she just thinks, I can't help but think church should be different. Uh, next we have, ah, this is Wes. Um, Wes is a freshman in high school. He is tremendously, uh, tremendously gifted athlete. He actually made varsity, let me see if I can remember, varsity football, varsity basketball, and varsity soccer as a freshman, which is pretty impressive. Um, Wes is a great student as well. Never made below an A. Had 4.0 his entire life, even in kindergarten when he was like, you know, doing the lowercase A's. Had the best lowercase A's in his class. Wes is that guy who all your, like when you're a freshman in high school, your mom is like, why don't you invite Wes over? Why don't you go hang? He's, he's that kid that your, uh, your parents want you to hang out with. Um, he has tons of friends. People just generally like him. But he and his parents can't figure out why he is horribly insecure. Um, he, he was, would have been devastated if he didn't make his varsity basketball, varsity football, and varsity soccer teams. He would be devastated if any one of his friends, for any reason, even expressed a little resentment towards him. And so his parents say, you know what, Wes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we, we've been going to this church for a couple of years. We're going to start taking you to the youth group. They got a strong youth program at our church. And then Wes comes in expecting, you know, cause he knows a little bit about Jesus. He, he, he has a little, so he's like, I'm, I'm going to experience great care and compassion. People are just going to welcome me in regardless of who I am. They're not going to care about my varsity sports or whatever. And he comes in and he finds that even though they don't care about his varsity sports, there's a whole another system of performance at work. He finds that if he doesn't know the right Bible verses, if he doesn't say the right prayers, if he doesn't know the words to the song, then people kind of disregard him. And so Wes's confidence is not only being assaulted in in his social life, but in his spiritual life. And Wes can't help but think church should be different. Next we have, ah, this is Pastor Phil. I like Pastor Phil. He's a good guy, okay? Pastor Phil is the pastor of a a 300-member church in his community, um, he was called to the ministry when he was a junior in college and just completely gave himself wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly to the ministry. But here's the thing. Pastor Phil is terribly unfulfilled and he's exhausted. He works so hard to bring his people to where that he thinks they should be. And, and he's getting discouraged because he notices a tremendous disconnect from where his people are and the, and the power and presence of God. This current of the activity of the Lord that he sees in the early church and in the scriptures. So Pastor Phil this morning is going to church. I mean, he's probably about to start preaching right now. Um, And he just thinks, I thought church would be different. Uh, Next we have, ah, this is Sarah. Sarah is a college student in New York. She's from a small town outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, she... Went to school in New York at Columbia University. She's very bright, very gifted intellectually. Grew up going to church. Great family, very connected. But now she's in this huge city. She's in with all these people who are brilliant, have all these life experiences, and they're all sort of converging at this one point in her life. And she and she's starting to meet people that she never thought she would meet and hear stories she never thought she would hear and be exposed to situations she never thought she would be exposed to. And she begins to say, you know, the church I grew up going to never even addressed these. I, I didn't know that there were civil wars going on for the past 20 years in sub-Saharan Africa. I didn't know that the majority of the world lives without food or clean drinking water or clothes. I didn't know about the, you know, the, the poverty level that is just ravaging the world that, I, that I've never seen. I didn't know that I could meet a Buddhist who is smarter, kinder, 
and, and overall just a, a more decent person than I am. People never told me this. They never told me that I could meet somebody that's completely different to me that I completely disagree with. And somehow I'd look at them and be like, man, you're, you're just nicer than I am. And so she thinks back and she's like, I don't know if my church is all that relevant. I don't, I don't know if the church that I grew up going to can address and withstand the issues that I'm seeing right now. And so as she goes to her university fellowship this morning, she's, she just thinks, ah, church should be different. So next we've got, ah, this is Stella. I have, I have a particular heart for Stella. Stella is a senior in high school, grew up super involved. I mean, I'm talking about like basically born on the church. Her church doesn't have chairs, they have pews. Basically born on a pew. Been in every ministry. She's been, she grew up going to Sunday school. And now she's in a youth program. And Stella is just good. She is really good. She does things right. She never gets in trouble. She's the one who her parents look at. And, I mean, they would let her do anything because she, she, she's a fastidious rule follower. Um, but here's the thing that's going on with Stella. She, uh, she loves the fact that she's good. She trusts the fact that she's good. She actually is seeing less and less of a point for all the teaching and preaching and care and all this other stuff that is going on at her church and in her youth group because she's basically making it on her own. She has her list of rules and she keeps them well. And so she comes in this morning to church. She says, you know, this church should be different. I think we have one more. This is Elizabeth. Friends call her Liz. Um, Liz is a single mom. She has a son in high school and a son in middle school. Um, and here's the, here's the thing. They're not doing well. Uh, she's constantly at one of the schools having to go over some disciplinary or academic issue. She doesn't know how to control them at the house. They come and go as they please. They're basically just roommates. And somehow she doesn't understand how her 13-year-old son and her 16-year-old son can treat her this way. And she, she's beginning to express her frustration in her small group. And she's becoming defensive. She's becoming weighed down. She's becoming unable to connect relationally because of how, how bogged down she feels. And so she comes to her church this morning. She can't help but think things should be different. And I think these stories, which are obviously fictional, um, but I mean, I think there's something in them. I'm sure some of y'all here can identify with at least one element or one part or one facet of this story. Of these stories, and I think these stories and ones like them show to illustrate that the re- you know we look around and we say, man, people just aren't coming to church. People are just down on the church, and I, and I would say that particularly particularly where we live, it's not because they have they they dislike Jesus or have a problem with God. I think mainly it's because the reason they don't want to come to church is because they've been, they've been, and. And it hasn't satisfied the deepest and most meaningful felt needs in their lives. And, and that's because I believe they're, they're experiencing not the church that Jesus said they would build, but the church that we in our own strength build. And I think this is, we have to get this out on the table before we begin to talk about the prayer of Paul and what this community of faith looks like. Um, I think that they experience something that we build, and and it's a a really simple formula. I could teach it to you right now. It's programs, or excuse me, it's place plus programs plus professionals equals church. Place plus programs plus plus professionals equals church. And what I mean by this is, okay, so you've got your place, you've got a building, you've got a site that everybody comes to, 
And that's your central meeting spot. Nothing really happens outside of that. When you walk in these doors, you're spiritual, you do your thing, you have your moment with Jesus, you sing a song, you pray a prayer, you hear a sermon, you, you exchange some sort of spiritual transaction in this building. So that's the place. And then there are programs. So what happens is we have these things that are made for us to come and participate in. And I would barely even say participate. By participate, I mean come be a warm, breathing body in a seat while it sort of happens to us. Because we, we don't want to go in and, and have things demanded of us. We don't want to have to contribute. We don't want to have to say, well, if you're going to be a part, this is a team sport, not a theatrical production. The difference between a theatrical production is we all sit and watch. The difference in a, in a team sport, we all play. And so we have programs that are basically productions and we just come and they happen to us and we leave. And then we kind of critique it. And we say, that was good. What did you think? Ah, oh, yeah, I liked it. Songs were good. Volume was a little off. Teaching was good today. I, I liked it. It, it, it applied to me. I, I, I liked it. But then, in the, so in this place with these programs, these are, these are run by professionals. And these are the people that we pay to manage our spiritual lives for us. These are the ones who keep up the place and dream up and institute the programs. And so we have, and that's church. And so basically we've got place plus programs plus professionals, and that's our church. And I think the New Testament paints a radically different picture. In fact, there's one other personal story that I didn't share with you. And the reason I didn't come with it in the beginning is because this guy's been dead for a while. It's not quite as relevant, maybe, as the ones we were looking at. But there's a guy named Paul. And on the Sunday morning that we, where he would normally go to fellowship with his believers, he was in jail. Um, and, and on the Sunday morning, he was praying for the people in the church that he had planted. And we get to listen in on this prayer. I think it's fantastic because I don't know about you, but when I'm alone with the door shut and it's just me and the Lord, stuff comes out that wouldn't normally come out around people. Like I, I say things, I'm more vulnerable. Maybe, maybe I, I feel safe that I can be angry or that I can just be broken. I can actually express my desires in a way that makes me vulnerable because I know that Jesus doesn't, doesn't look at those desires and go, yeah, get those out of here. I actually, I know that he's listening. I know that he hears me. So I bring out what's in the depth of my heart. And we get to listen um, in this for Paul. And so we're going to go ahead and, and if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 15 through 23. He says, for this reason, because I have heard in your faith, In the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the greatness of his working of, excuse me, according to the greatness of his power, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I think what we get here is Paul is the prayer that Paul prays 
implies the reality of a new community. So these transformed individuals are being brought together into a dynamic new community for the sake of the world around them. And I think we see a few things um, in Paul's prayer. First, we see this is going to be a community of loving relationships. He says, I have heard of your love towards all the saints. So these are people who don't just love like their three or their four and no more. They love all the saints. And Paul even shows us what this is like. And he says, I heard of this and I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. Like how awkward would it be? How uncomfortable if someone cared about you so much that they walked up to you and they were like, oh, just thank you for praying for me. Thank you for bringing a meal to my house. Thank you for this. I'm so moved by your love for all the saints. So we see that one of the things that marks this community is loving relationships. And I think we have to have certain ingredients they have to be present for loving relationships. Now, I'm not getting these directly out of this, but they're in the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture testifies to them. So even though they're sort of implied by this, they're not directly in here. So don't like freak out. If you're like, well, hey, where'd you get that? It's, it's there, I promise. Um, I think we need three things for actual loving relationships to take place. And that's trust, transparency, and truth. Okay, trust, transparency, and truth. Here's what I mean by that. Trust. You look at someone... And this is, I was thinking about it last night. This is the way I would describe it. You look at someone and you never fear, no matter what you bring up, what you say, what you do, how you are, your, how great your success is or how low your failure is, you never fear being pushed away, but you know you'll always be brought close. You know what I mean? How, how awful was it the time that you wanted to be close to someone and instead of being brought in, they kind of shoved you away? I mean, how horrible in that. In, in Psalm 51, David prays and he says, cast me not away from your presence. Basically, don't tell me to go away. So truth, or excuse me, trust is the thing that always says, come here, I'm open, you're accepted and safe with me. So you look at someone and you say, I know that not only am I accepted in our relationship, but that I'm safe in our relationship. And this opens us up to transparency, which means I bring it all out. I said this last week, but I'll say it again. We call it a safe place to throw up. Um, and I'll just describe it real briefly again. This, all this is, I mean, I think about it. I was, this is my, by the way, this is my mom right here. She's waving. Um, my mom has stories of me when I was a baby, and I was a projectile vomiter, okay? I'm talking about like I could hit the wall in the back of the sanctuary if you just aimed me right, okay? Um, and, and it took me a while to grow out of that. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> and so... Um, when you, you know, when you get that feeling and you're like, oh man, this isn't going to be good. The first thing you want to do is you want to find a place where, where no one's looking at you and it's quiet. No one's around. So it's a safe place. So what transparency means is that you can come in here and it's safe. You can bring it all out. I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to be hurt. I'm going to recognize that you just need love in your brokenness, in your success, in your fit, whatever it is, whatever comes up, you just need love there. So you can be fully transparent because I'm not going to be like, oh, that's gross. Stop. So, and then these things, when you have these two, and let me just say this too, transparency is necessary. Because when we're afraid to be transparent, we invent secrets. We start to cover things up because we're scared of what other people think of us. And secrecy kills community. So right now, if you're harboring dark places in your heart, if you're in relationship with people and you're covering stuff up because you're wondering about what this person or that person will say, think, feel, or do towards you, that's killing your relationship with them. Because secrecy 
kills community, but transparency causes transformation. So the last thing is truth. And once you have trust and transparency, once you're, you believe in the person and you can be fully open with them, then you have license to speak truth into their life. You have license to say, hey, I, you know how much I love you. That, that doesn't, that's not okay. That behavior, that thought process is not okay. Or even affirm things that are the, the closest things to their heart and the most vulnerable for them. You can say, that's fantastic. Go for it. So you can speak truth. And these things, I think these things constitute loving relationships. So pause a minute. Let's ask a question. Are you deficient in any, in any of these areas and relationships in your life? I'm not talking about in everyone because you can't have loving relationships with everyone you know. You just you don't have that sort of relational capacity. I'm talking about your circle of close friends, those who you would consider the people that you call on. Do you have trust, transparency, and truth? Do you believe the best about other people? Do you believe that the people you're around believe the best about you? Do you are you willing to open it all up and just let it go with other people? Are you harboring secrets? And are you willing to speak the, the truth in love? Moving on, he says uh, later, he says that this is a community of priority. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So basically he's saying, I pray that he would give you knowledge and wisdom to know him, primarily him. And this leads us into the other things we're going to be talking about. He says, first and foremost, I pray that you would know him, general sense, you would know Jesus. And this is going to cause, this is my interpretation, the eyes of your heart to be opened. And I think immediately of Jesus when he says, okay, the eye, the eyes of your heart are the most important thing about you. Because if, if your eyes, the eyes of your heart are set on good things, then your whole body will be filled with light and life. But if they're set on destructive things and things that are dead, your body will be full of death and destruction. So Paul is saying, I pray that the most important part of your vision would be, op- would be open and set on the most glorious, stunning, splendid, beautiful thing it could be set on because that will transform your life. And I ask you right now, what, do your eye- what are your eyes filled with right now? What do you fill your eyes with? And I don't mean these eyes. I don't mean do you watch reruns of Friends or Seinfeld or CSI or I don't even know what shows are on TV except for the, like, the two that I watch. Um, are they filled with that? No, I'm not talking about that. We're talking about when you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing that occupies the primary place of importance? Do you look and, and just, are you crushed by the weight of expectation on you? And it could be good or bad. Are you, do you immediately wake up and you're like, oh, I woke up next to my spouse and this is fantastic. I love my husband. I love my wife. I love the kids that are sleeping down the hall from me. It, or maybe it's you looking and you're like, I just don't know how I can do this anymore. I have kids down the hall that I don't even know if I'm going to be able to take care of in 10 years. What, what fills that place? Are you thinking, oh, I have to go to work again. I can't, meet, I can't handle the pressure. That I know my supervisor is going to ask me to do 10 more things that I don't have the time, energy, or capability to, go, to do. I mean, what is filling the primary object of importance and affection, your primary gaze in your life? And he says, I pray that that would be open to the knowledge of him. 
Because he says, this is, what, this is what's going to change you. He says, if you behold how good he is, it will re- define your life. And he, and he kind of lists it out in this way. He says, I pray that your eyes will be open to the, uh, by a spirit of wisdom and revelation to him. So basically, we would just be gazing on how good he is. In our heart, we'd be constantly reminding ourselves of what he's done, how he feels, what he said, and what he is doing. And this transforms our life. I mean, beyond just quiet time, beyond just here singing songs, like when we're driving on the road, we're reminding ourselves, okay, we've got to go in and we're going to have to have a tough conversation with these three people in my office. But Jesus spoke the truth in love. He was never afraid of conflict. He lived perfectly in a world of fallen people for me. So now he gives me that strength. And so we constantly have our eyes open experientially, not just up here, but actually, experientially, we are living with our eyes wide open. And, and this results, the, the way this is accomplished is through wisdom and revelation. And wisdom has this thing of it's practical. It's not just some mysterious experience we have here and it doesn't really transform us. So this, this thing of wisdom makes us a community of engagement. And this is what I mean by a community of engagement. I mean that we engage the culture we're a part of. By the wisdom of God. We engage the culture that we're a part of with the wisdom of God. I think we're really good at writing culture off. We say, look at the condition of our schools. It's horrible. No prayer in schools. Terrible. What are these science teachers teaching my kids? I can't stand this. Or we look at TV and we say, I can't believe the filth. Is on. You see the Super Bowl commercials? I can't believe the filth that's on here. Or we look at movies and say, there's aren't any movies I can take my family to. I mean, what are we going to do? This fallen culture we live in. And what wisdom causes us to do is it causes us to look and say, God is at the forefront. He is the creator of all things. He's the creator. He is the creator of creativity. He is the one. And with this wisdom, it causes us to go out and not run from or condemn or unilaterally push away. our. It causes us to go out and engage. It says that God has a plan for public schools. It says that knowledge was created by God, not so I just shelter my family, but so I I engage. We have ideas and thoughts that shape the school systems that we are part of. We begin to enter in and change the culture of the schools in our community. And see, because here's what it is. The school board or the whatever, I don't even know, whatever, my mom will know she's a teacher. But whatever it is, the governing body has looked at the church and said they have no relevance for the way we're going to educate our children. They hang out in their club, they do their happy clappy thing, and, and they, they, they don't have any way to effectively teach our kids. They have no voice in this conversation, so they do their own thing. They don't consult us. We who have a direct line to him who is full of knowledge and wisdom. And, but this causes us not to say, okay, we're taking my kids in. Not that there's anything wrong with homeschooling, but I'm taking them in and we're just doing our thing. Rather, it says, you know what? We're going to send our kids out equipped to be salt and light in their school. And you know what? We're going to adopt, our, we're going to adopt a school in our community. We're going we're gonna to start looking at school systems as a mission field. We're going to start, you know what? If you're gifted here and you're super creative with writing or camera work or whatever, God may be calling you to go be a cameraman in a TV station and be an agent of transformation at NBC. Like, for real, he does that kind of stuff. It's not if you want to be effective in the kingdom, you have to be a professional doing programs in a place. He says you are commissioned to be salt and light with the wisdom of God wherever you are. 
And we just kind of do this thing of, of sensationalism and sentimentality. Like we've kinda, we kind of say, well, we don't really engage real life. We have this thing of like, we have our, our boyfriend Jesus or our superhero Jesus or our white guy with blonde hair, blue eyes, carrying a sheep with a blue sash Jesus, whoever it is. And we gather around him and we just, we just love that guy. We love the guy that never went out and got dirty. We love the guy who never encountered anyone that was morally below him. We love the guy that comes in and does a bunch of stuff in our place during our programs led by professionals. And so we, we sort of traffic in sentimentality. We have this gooey, sweet, saccharine love for this fictitious character that we've invented. Or we do this thing of sensationalism. And it's a power encounter here that has no effect on the way we live out there. And what the wisdom, and we have opted for this rather than the knowledge of God. And because we have no appetite for the knowledge of God, we give our mind and imaginations to sitcoms, movies, and pornography instead of move, being moved to action in our culture with the wisdom of God, with the word of God. And so I think Paul's saying here that I'm praying that your heart and mind would be enlightened, that you would then be sent out completely convinced of who God is and that he has an answer and a plan for whatever sphere of society you're involved in. And I think once we engage, we're also we're a community of hope. He says, I pray that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. Because here's the deal. The world doesn't really have any grounds for hope. I mean, whatever degree it's in, wherever we are, we have to, we have, we're confronted with questions of meaninglessness. What, why am I here? What am I doing? Why, why, why do I go, why do I work this job? Why a family? Why this? Why that? What, what, why am I, I mean, classic question. What is, what is the meaning of my life? What is the purpose of my life? We're confronted with sickness. We're confronted with people's bodies being ravaged by multiple sclerosis, cancer, HIV, AIDS, all these things that just deteriorate our body or our mind. And we don't have answers for that. We don't have something to say. You know, the world doesn't have something to say that is meaningful to those situations. We're confronted with evil. I mean, if we get outside of our bubble and look at places in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, even South America, we don't have answers for the stuff that goes on there. I mean, you watch some of the old invisible children stuff. I don't, I, I, in myself, I don't have answers for that. I don't have answers for some of the stuff, even the conditions that we saw in Hurricane Katrina. I don't have answers in and of myself for that. I don't have a source of hope. I don't, here's, the, here's the big one. We all, we all live in fear of this. We all live kind of in its shadow. We don't have an answer for death. We don't have an answer for this thing that has so much sting in it that it affects our lives constantly. And so we, the world has no real answer for this, but not, not in an arrogant way, but we do. We, we do. We, we have the end of the story. We look and recognize that we're going to a place where he wipes away every tear. We're going to a place where there's no sickness. There's no death. Anything that weighed you down here is a vapor there. We're, we're going to a place where he shepherds us in loving kindness. We're going to a place where conflict is non-existent. So the things that weigh us down constantly, the things that cause us to walk under this gray cloud of not just death in the future, but death in this life, we know the answer. Can we, can we stand there and not just hold out answers, not just hold out advice, but hold out life? Because we, under, we understand this future and it invades our present. So instead of medicating ourselves on entertainment or pleasure, 
we have answers for actual human issues that cause life and flourishing to take place. Not just life and like, okay, I'm, I'm getting by, I'm doing my thing. I'm about flourishing life at its absolute highest level. And it's not pie in the sky of, well, one day we're going to heaven, we're checking out of here. I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about right now you can experience resurrection life and life-altering hope in your situation, in all the mess, in all the mess. And here's the thing, it might not take you out of it, but we recognize that we have one with us who suffered worse than any of us will ever suffer. And he is constantly saying, come to me, come to me. I'm, you, you might not get out of it, but I guarantee you, I have strength for you to get you through. And so we hold out hope. And this hope afflicts people who love pleasure. So we look at people who have no concept of future, no concept of even 10 years down the road, who just live for the moment. We say, hey, there's a day coming. There's a day coming and a lot of this stuff won't fly. I mean, here's the thing. All it takes is one brush with that. All it takes is a car wreck. All it takes is a significant illness. All it takes is a loved one. I mean, how many of you have sat in that, in, in that chair or in that pew or whatever it is, and you've watched the preacher in the black suit read the things about the person whose body is right here, and you're confronted with mortality? You're confronted with the fact that we, this isn't a blank check of years, we're confronted with the fact that it ends. And, and when we hold that out to people who say, yeah, I'm going to live forever, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. We say, oh, but you don't understand. There is an end. But this end isn't final. We have hope. This is not an adversary that comes at you with, with force to sting and kill and destroy. This is something that has been trampled under the feet of our risen Lord. Here, let me hold out hope to you. And we look at those who are mourning, who are afflicted in this life, and we say, it's, this isn't all it is. There's something glorious. There's something that you inherit when we're done with this. Here, let me hold out the hope that Jesus has to be able to sustain you in this life. And so that shows us that we're also a community of power. And and yes, I do mean dynamic, miracle power, but I also mean power to sustain you when living life in a broken and fallen world. I think that's more profound than any... uh, uh, I need to think about that statement, but I I think actually it is more profound than any miraculous sign or wonder. I think when you look at a person who suffers well, who lives in abject poverty or with an intense relational strain, and they are unaffected by it, not because they're aloof, but because their heart is buoyed by a superior power that gives them hope, then we see something that is truly supernatural. It's not running around, laying hands on everybody, zapping everybody with the Holy Ghost ray gun. It is actual power that courses through you moment by moment. I love the story. Um, John Wesley, who's been living his life as a powerless missionary, goes to a meeting of some Moravians that he met. And he hears this, the, the, uh, some of that Martin Luther wrote being read. And he leaves and he says, my heart was strangely warm. And he said, there's nothing much more to it than that. But he said, I woke up the next morning and found I was able to fight temptation. I found that once where the enemy accused me and I fell, I had power to resist. And I think if people look at you and see a lifestyle that is above above reproach by resisting temptation and living in hope regardless of circumstance, I think then they understand that we have power. And also, I do mean dynamic power. 
I mean power that people can come here, and if they're emotionally wounded, physically sick, spiritually dead, they can experience the power. I love this. He says the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. They can experience something of immeasurable power. So it gives us power for life, and it gives us dynamic power for bursts of life. And here's something we do have to ask ourselves. Do we look for anything other than Jesus to promise us power? Do we look for something else that says, I will give you power to live your life in this way? Do we look for money? Do we look for relationships? Do we look at our family? Do we look at a substance? Do we look at a set of relationships? Do we look at anything that says, I will give you power to deal with this, to cope with this, to overcome this? And it's other than Jesus. Because if we have something that says, I promise you power, that's an idol. And we say, you know, again, we said, we said this last week. We may say, idols, that's like thousands of years ago, gold calf stuff. No, it's that thing that gives you, promises you power but can never deliver. And woos your heart away from Jesus with promises of hope and power. But it ultimately disappoints. It ultimately causes you to be hard-hearted and leads you to destruction and death. So we're a community of power, and because of all these things, we're a community of confidence. I'm not talking about a community of arrogance. I'm not talking about a community of triumphalism, like, you know, we got this guy riding in on a white horse. He's going to do away with everything. Ha, 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 eat it, world, whatever. No, we are, live in confidence that we know the hope we're called to. We know the riches of his glorious inheritance on us, and we know the immeasurable power of him to us who believe. And it causes us to live in a way that we, we're just above situations we're above what people think we're above the way people act to us or what they call us or what they say about us in in media or even at the grocery store in kroger we live confidently because we know who we believe we live in a confidence that can't be shaken because our confidence isn't in us or something in this world that is passing away it's in a king who sits on a throne in particular we need to look at he says Do you know, or I pray that you would know, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in verse 18? And I immediately think of 2 Peter where he says, he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything we need. Which means that in this work of Jesus that is applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need. We have not something, we have riches. Have you ever noticed how people who have a lot of money just walk differently? It's kind of like... If I get dirty, I'll just buy new shoes, bro. Don't worry about me. You know, it's this, it's this thing. And imagine how we would walk through life if we knew the riches that are available to us. Because here's the problem. We have it all, but we live poor. That's about financially poor. That, that Jesus could care less about that. He says, I have given you everything you need, and there's a glorious inheritance that you have in me, that there will be grace given to you, power dispensed to you, and hope offered to you. And so we live confidently in a shaky world. And finally, and I, I couldn't think of one better than this, but it, we're a community of love for Jesus. And I was going to say a community that's centered on Jesus or a community that's oriented around Jesus, but I don't think that gets at what, what Paul is saying here. Because if we're centered on Jesus, we can say his name, do all the stuff that he would do, but never really love him, never really have our heart affected by him. Never really have our emotions melted and moved by how good he is. 
And so I think if we love Jesus, we honor his position, we recognize that he has been seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Y'all, Jesus isn't up for election. We don't vote that, we don't vote somebody into that seat. Jesus isn't worried about what public talk radio says about him. Jesus is sitting on a throne that will not be shaken. He is above every name, above every power, above every system that is at work within this world. And that's who we are united with. So we look at him and we recognize, you've got this under control. We know who owns the house. We look at him and we say, there is nothing here that you are surprised by. There's nothing here that you didn't know about. If, it, if, if we see it, your hand is over it. Maybe not, in, maybe not in causation, but in authority. And so I, we honor his position and we relish his presence. It says that he is given to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we have the one who is sent to perfectly display the image of God at work in our midst right now. And we relish it. It's a privilege. It's something that we look forward to and hope for and long for. That's why Paul says, I pray your eyes would be open to it, continually, ongoingly open to the fact that he's here. He's with us. He doesn't show up because he has to. He shows up because he wants to. He loves us and he likes us. And he fills us with hope. He fills us with riches and glorious inheritance. And he fills us with immeasurable power. And we recognize that what is going on here is not just something we're drumming up. It's something he's doing. And finally, we, we do, we honor his position, we relish his presence, but we love his person. This is the thing, I, I had this question I asked a lot for the past probably year and a half. And that is, what is the minimum thing somebody has to do to be a Christian? What is the, what is the thing that, that you cross that line and, and you're a believer, you're in the family? I'd say it's this. I would say that above all things, above all people, you love Jesus. You look at him and you recognize him. He is a king seated above all authority, power, and dominion. And he does. He fills us with his presence and his life and his light. But we recognize that this king, this omnipotent ruler, became nothing for us. He humbled himself for us. He brought us to himself by his own body and blood. We recognize that the one who could have just snapped his fingers and it would have been had this experience of being made as nothing and not just being made nothing but suffering death on a cross in our place when we didn't love him. And so because of his love, because of how good he is, he comes and he gets us and he does away with our former life and, and infects us with the life of God and gives us hope and riches and immeasurable power. And it all turns on the basis of his incredible, ill-deserved commitment and love to us. So as we're closing this morning, um, ministry teams, you can go ahead and come up. Um, I think we need to ask ourselves, is there any, any way, anywhere in these that we see ourselves as deficient? 
Do we, do we say, you know what, in my relationships, I'm not operating in, in trust, transparency, and truth. My, my, the thing that fills my eyes aren't, aren't Jesus. I'm, my, the eyes of my heart have not been enlightened to him. Honestly, I run from culture rather than engage it. I'm, I'm terrified of having a conversation with an atheist. I'm terrified with having a conversation with someone who holds a different belief set than me. Because I don't know what to say. I don't, God hasn't given me that confidence yet. He hasn't given me that wisdom and revelation. Are you deficient in hope? Do you look at your life and just not know how you're going to make it? Have you actually tasted of his resurrection power? Are, are, you, are you actually lacking power? Do you say, I'm so bogged down, I can't get on top of what's going on in my life. I, I would love for Jesus to open my eyes to see that his resurrection power is not just for me in the future, but it's united with me now. Do you lack confidence? And again, we're not talking about arrogance or self-confidence. We're talking about, I just, I'm not 100% sure. I look at Jesus and I kind of believe the Bible. And I kind of believe the gospel. But I just, I'm not sure how strong that limb is. And finally, do you, do you love him? Do you, do you love him? Because here's the thing. I believe when all of these are evident, we, we have answers for Pastor Phil who needs power in his ministry. We have answers for Liz, who's a single mom who needs loving relationships. We have answers for the college student, Sarah, who has no idea how the church can engage our culture. We have answers for Stella, who trusts her own, her, trusts her own righteousness instead of loving Jesus. We have answers for Wes, who has no confidence because it's all he only looks at himself. And we have answers for Leslie, who has no expectation. And we have answers for John, who has no hope. And more importantly, we have answers for our community when we begin to be marked by these things. Um, if, you, if you want to take communion, we have it right here to remember Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. If you need to go get your kids, you're more than welcome to. We love you. We bless you. Um, but if you need prayer, don't walk out of here. Okay? All right, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to, Harvest is going to lead us in ministry. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you call us to community. But more importantly, we thank you that you build our community. We thank you that you build our relationships by your own power for your own glory and our joy. So we pray that even in our presence this morning, we would see your work. We would experience your power. We would know hope. And we would be moved to love. We love you, Jesus. Amen.